The anti-racism movement in the U.S. following uh, the murder of George Floyd and uh, other atrocities that have been committed by uh, white police officers uh, certainly led to uh, a global media uh, scrutiny on the situation in the U.S. And this uh, wider protest movement has even led to some questions being asked here in Korean society as to how uh, Koreans also uh, treat members of the minority and perhaps uh, looking at ways to uh, better address the issues of discrimination. But uh, are we now uh, past the stage where we're seeing that uh, with the media attention moving on to other things that uh, uh, there has been a stalling uh, in the progress that a lot of people are demanding? Uh, To hear more about what's going on in the U.S., uh, we're very pleased and honored to have joining us uh, the Emmy-nominated writer, activist, and comedian joining us uh, on the line from the U.S., uh, Baratunde Thurston. Hello. Hello. Good to hear you. Thanks for having me. Well, thank you for joining us, sir. Uh, I understand that uh, it's been a busy time. Uh, you are involved in, in so many things. Uh, you, you've been involved in things that I, I'm, I'm a big fan of, like, like The Daily Show. I even heard you on a, on a podcast I listened to, um, the, the Leo Laporte podcast that uh, you've made yes, <laughs> appearances on, yes. uh, on recently as well. Uh, but despite that, I, I understand it's an exhausting uh, past six months, at least, with the uh, coronavirus pandemic. I know that you also have uh, a, a podcast uh, uh, addressing those concerns. Concerns as well, but now with the protest movement, uh, how have things gone for you personally in uh, what is perhaps an unprecedented time in U.S. history? I uh, I appreciate that question, man. Thank you for asking about the personal impact. It's been exhausting, um, honestly, and it's been sometimes inspiring, sometimes overwhelming, and those can happen within the same few minutes. When your government uh, fails you so abjectly as ours has with the coronavirus and then reminds you more explicitly that your life is worth a bit less in the eyes of law enforcement, uh, that can be very depressing yeah. and very agitating, uh, to say the least. Uh, but I've got, you know, good support. I, uh, I've got good friends and family and loved ones, and I am humbled by people. You know, we're honoring John Lewis right now, one right. of our great leaders in the U.S. who recently passed away at age 80. And so looking at his life and his level of commitment is um, an opportunity to recommit for those of us who are a little younger and may deem ourselves exhausted by this struggle. It continues, and it must. So in the midst of all the exhaustion, there's still some motivation uh, within me. There has been uh, this sense that after the the murder of George Floyd and all of these other uh, horrific events that have occurred uh, to to black Americans uh, at the hands of police brutality, but also addressing the wider issues of institutional racism in the U.S., that perhaps this recent protest movement um, was different. You, there was more support. You, you were actually getting majority American support for Black Lives Matter, which wasn't uh, the case uh, in the aftermath of uh, Ferguson Missouri. However, uh, at least from the international media perspective, as as you know very well, uh, the media likes to kind of just go on to the next uh, hot button issue. And um, now maybe things are focusing more on the eruption of coronavirus in places like uh, the U.S. Uh, Do you see that uh, these people who have um, become new allies to the cause have maybe perhaps kind of lessened their attention to to um, what the protest movement has been advocating and is still advocating? 
I, it's hard to tell where that attention has fully gone and how sustained it will be. Uh, I've been making a, a podcast you mentioned earlier called We're Having a Moment. Right. And one of the inspirations behind it is that it felt like this moment is different, that the number of allies showing up and the depth of their interest and, and action far exceeds a lot of the showmanship uh, that we had seen in the past, mm. uh, the types of books people are reading, the questions they're asking, the internal conversations I've been privy to, really has given me hope. And, and so I, I don't want to take my cue from news coverage, because okay. as you mentioned, uh, the news likes to chase the latest shiny object. Right. And the latest shiny object is our spiking uh, coronavirus numbers in the U.S., uh, another tragedy very much worth covering. So, so we'll see. Um, but I think there are positive signs at the symbolic level, whether it's the removal of Confederate statues, the changing of sports teams' names away from those which dehumanize and dishonor our indigenous uh, residents in this country, uh, to companies trying to make real commitments uh, about how they hire, who they hire, and even what products they make. And the last thing I would say is, look, we can't keep our foot on the gas in the same way constantly. Like, being out in the streets protesting all day, every day, in the middle of a pandemic, less limit every movement has cycles uh, it's what i hope is happening but will not yet predict is that we are in a cycle and as an election emerges and as candidates you know update their positions and what they're proposing then that movement shifts in terms of how it's visible and where it applies pressure and i've been heartened to see what uh vice president joe biden has been putting in his platform as far as much more aggressive plans on racial justice on policing on uh, climate justice than he ever had considered a year ago. It's interesting you mentioned Joe Biden because uh, on the other side of the aisle, you have the incumbent president, Donald Trump, who uh, seems to be doubling down on on the issue of uh, race. His his, uh, bizarre stance on the Confederate statues, on the renaming of uh, military bases uh, that were named after, after Confederate leaders who are essentially traitors, to the country where even his own military uh, are uh, advocating that and the banning of Confederate symbols. And even the right. Mi- Mississippi state legislature, if you're to the right of the uh, Mississippi state legislature in terms of where you stand on uh, Confederate monuments, it seems like an interesting political strategy for him. Does he feel and do you think there are still enough people in America that feel energized by that issue in terms of race and doubling down on racist symbols like um, Confederate flags, that that is enough to carry him to another victory? I hope not, and I doubt it. And I do think it is an absurd situation where you have a president who is to the right of the Mississippi State Legislature and NASCAR, yeah. uh, you know, our, our uh, sort of Formula One internal version here in the U.S., uh, when it comes to Confederate symbolism, that's not leaving himself a lot of room uh, to, to wiggle. But this president has never tried to be the president of the entire country. And, and so I think there is some intention to the smallness of the constituency that he's trying to speak to. He is playing a game of racism, division, and white grievance. And he started his campaign that way, and he's only gotten smaller since then. He's had opportunities, but he hasn't taken any of them to actually expand his his message. So I fear what he's really is discord, is more unrest, is more division. And his strategy is to pit us 
against one another. He's actually running against the people of the United States. When you just and that's not uh, I am a hyperpartisan, but that statement isn't. That that statement is backed by data. His position yeah. are far out of the mainstream, even out of young Republicans. So who is he trying to govern for? And I think he's got a much more devious and destructive intention where he's willing to sacrifice all of us for himself. And that's what I fear most, that he actually has no patriotism, no sense of service. It's all ego and it's all selfishness. And as we've seen with the coronavirus, he's willing to watch as tens of thousands, now over 140,000 of us die, many of those preventively and needlessly. So when it comes to the election, uh, it, his strategy is one that's going to cost us, at, at a minimum, psychological and emotional pain. And I just hope that Joe Biden and the rest of us can see past it, see bigger than it, not let him take us down with him. Speaking of Joe Biden, you've um, spoken of how you feel optimistic in terms of the evolution he's had on uh, these issues that are important to you uh, and the community. I know that there's um, a little bit of a generational divide in how Biden is perceived. Perhaps the the older generation uh, does have this sense of nostalgia, the, these warm feelings towards him, the um, remembering the the, the Obama Biden presidency. But I, I do know that younger black activists perhaps have a bit more of a skeptical uh, view on him. He has, um, and I, I want to get your thoughts on the issue, uh, he has stated publicly that he doesn't support this idea of defund the police. Now, if you had told people, we do not like to see massive amounts of money going into these corrupt police unions, and we'd like to divert some of those funds into the community and help with mental health counseling and all these other issues that could help improve the lives of people in the community. A lot of people might have thought, well, that sounds reasonable, and maybe some people had thought the actual term defend, defund the police was, was, was loaded. Uh, is it, do you still feel that the... Uh, idea of convincing the majority public in um, in America that defund the police isn't the big scary thing that it sounds like uh, is is still a work in progress? Yo, your questions are great. Um, this is really enjoyable. Thank you. Um, I think that activists and those who want to push us the farthest should stick with aggressive language mm. like defund the police. Okay. You don't start your negotiations by conceding half your points uh, from the top. Over-ask, and then the compromise lands you in a place that you can live with. And, and what ultimately we want is a redirection of funds. It is an absurd state to live in when the number one spending for most of the cities in this country is law enforcement, is the police department, singularly. That means, by definition, we're kind of living in a police state, and there's so many other services worth funding that can alleviate the causes of stress and pain and even emergency that would require you to call the police in the first place. So there are very few people, when the question is framed, shifting resources away from law enforcement into mental health, into homeless services, into better schools, into better jobs. I think uh, the connection with uh, Baratunde uh, Thurston is breaking up. Why don't we try to reconnect uh, with him? Uh, what we've been talking about right now are some of still uh, the uh, pressing concerns uh, that protesters have uh, with the current situation in the U.S., including 
the uh, idea that uh, defund the police is uh, somewhat controversial. Let's see if we can uh, reestablish the connection again. Hello? I am back. Sorry, sorry about that. Uh, uh, Where you lost me, I'll I'll try to pick it up. Right. Uh, Basically, you were talking about how um, the the language uh, can be provocative and and that uh, people who have that stance um, should go forward with it. And then you were explaining uh, the idea behind defund the police. I understand that you also have had, um, uh, I guess, a bit of a shift in perception on how to approach this issue. Yeah, I mean, I think what, uh, again, I think we may have gotten lost before, but what matters is that we actually shift where the money goes. There's been so much momentum. First of all, I think it's just a great of education where people are starting to understand what their city budgets look like. That's not an, a normal activity right. for most of us. And so to just be aware that the number one spending for our cities is going to the police department it, it is great to be involved in that discussion. And then to know what some of those alternatives are hmm. uh, is also great. And even Joe Biden, look, his history on this is checkered, and I'm not yeah. going to try to cover for him and the crime bill and everything else. Uh, but he's the best choice we have now. And I will defer to one of the great activists in this nation, uh, Angela Davis, hmm. who was like, one to much more in our favor than the current president. So, so, so we go with him and we apply the pressure where we can. Uh, but ultimately, we would need to see those shifts happening. And we're starting to see it from the New York Police Department to the L.A. Police Department. Uh, even the increased transparency, the banning of chokeholds right. and, and bayonets. I didn't even know we were using bayonets. Jeez. Like, that's how insane our policing policy in the U.S. can be. So if we can shine a light on that and change those, coming out of this moment, we may not get to defund the police, quote-unquote, in six mm. months, but we will have a lot more scrutiny and a lot more transparency and a lot more accountability. And with the amount of power that police officers have, that needs to be matched with greater accountability, and that's something I think we can expect out of this moment. With Joe Biden and the consensus being that he does need to appoint a, a, a woman, a person of color, uh, on the ticket as vice presidential candidate. And what you just described in terms of the, the problems with law enforcement, I'm not asking you to publicly endorse uh, one candidate over the other. I know you're not going to do that on our uh, humble little program here. But I know that there is this debate, there is this question that if he appoints somebody like Kamala Harris or like Val Demings, who has a, again, you say, checkered history with, with law enforcement and their views on that, as opposed to, let's say, a Stacey Abrams or even uh, a, a white candidate like uh, Elizabeth Warren. Um, there seems to be a, a question as to uh, what will be uh, the right choice that can appeal to the most number of people. That would be the campaign strategy. But uh, for you, what is important in terms of uh, what you think Joe Biden needs to think about as he appoints a vice presidential candidate? I think um, Joe Biden needs to think about the future, needs to think about the most bold position he can take, the most bold choice he can make, while keeping in mind that he is going to have an opportunity to be the president of everybody and not the president of a narrow and dwindling and extremist base uh, within a base in this country. Uh, I have been learning more about uh, a representative from the state of California uh, Karen Bass. Mm. And I'm not here to endorse her, but I'm very intrigued by her. And I think Joe Biden needs to send a couple of signals. One, 
he needs to be very clear with black people in the Democratic Party and black women in the Democratic Party who have always been right in terms of these choices. It wasn't the black people who flip-flopped, you know, last time around in 2016. It certainly wasn't black women who had any doubt about who the president should be. And the most loyal block in this party is black people and then within that black women. So the Democratic Party owes black people in a true sense. In the same way that they might owe their donors, they owe their voters, and they should uh, pay that debt first. Then I think it is about setting the stage and the standard for, you know, again, vision, boldness, the future. We've got big climate opportunity here. We've got big economic opportunity to rewrite some of these rules. And we cannot be playing these games trying to sort of cut around the edges of some watered-down policy from the past. The next generation will not tolerate that. Literally, our planet will not tolerate that. Our air will not tolerate that. So I hope he um, looks at this with the historic lens that he's been gifted and and goes big. It almost feels like... uh you have been a bit of a prophet here with the, the current situation that we find ourselves in. Uh, I, I encourage everyone to to uh, watch your TED Talk, which, of course, millions have done, uh, where you kind of kind of scrutinize the headlines with, uh, for example, white woman and 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 black man, and and kind of decode what exactly the media is saying in those situations. And now, you know, the term Karen has become pretty much uh, ubiquitous uh, on social media. What you were talking about, uh, um, you know, four, five, six, seven, eight years ago, and what we're talking about now. I know for you, it's like everyone's catching up to <laughs> what you've been what you've been discussing. But it must feel pretty surreal that all of what you've talked about kind of is encapsulated in that incident with Amy Cooper and Christian Cooper in Central Park in New York, right? Yeah, it is, uh, it's a dubious distinction to feel like I put a message out a year ago that so perfectly fit the moment we're in now right. with uh, the Amy Cooper situation. And, you know, I, I built that talk as an exercise in language, as an exercise in what it means to live in a world where those sentences are so true all the time. And I tried to make a strong case as, as creatively, occasionally, comedically as I could, that weaponizing access to law enforcement in that way has deadly consequences. I refer to it as calling in a drone strike uh, on an innocent person, which is something this country knows something about, but we've done it at the micro level, too. And, and so to have Amy Cooper do it in front of all of us while we had nothing else to pay attention to because brunch was canceled and basketball was canceled mm. and all we could see were the horrors in our own country. That was surreal. And it was uh, a powerful and painful lesson to recognize the consequence of a call like that play out halfway across our country in Minneapolis, in Minnesota, with Derek Chauvin killing George Floyd in response to a 911 call yeah. where someone you know who had a counterfeit $20 bill, something no one in this world thinks is worth being killed over. Uh, so, yeah, it's, it's life and death. And I think, you know, Amy Cooper reminded us on the same day as Derek Chauvin that these are not merely headlines, that they're, you know, highly consequential actions and one that should be changed. And you are speaking to our Korean audience, and as I said uh, earlier, uh, the protest movement in the U.S. has uh, raised a lot of questions as to how Koreans treat others in in society as well. And I know that um, Black Lives Matter doesn't necessarily have the bandwidth to, to, to worry about other countries, so to speak. But what do you hope ultimately is going to be the legacy of what we're going through right now, uh, maybe a decade from now? 
Whoa, okay, that's a that's a big question. Um, let me see. One, I would want more of us to acknowledge the history that we are living in, that we have inherited, and that has set so many policies and standards, uh, which incentivize us to treat some people worse than others. And that is not uniquely American. Uh, we've been talking a lot about the United States. There's a lot to talk about in the United States. But these Black Lives Matter protests have been happening all over right. the world uh, beyond just solidarity, because there are local versions of something like this happening everywhere. Uh, and there's a version of white supremacy that happens all over. So I, anyway, I want us to contend with our history in a much more honest, inclusive, and less shame-filled way. It doesn't mean we have to hate who we were. It means we have to grow from who we were to be something better. Um, and then I want people to see that the op- the opportunity that we have, and I really like speaking of it as an opportunity rather than some obligation or some charity, that we're asking for anti-racism. We're asking for active inclusion. Right. And it's not just to help the downtrodden. It's to help all of us. Right. You know, we've all been misled and miseducated. Men, with respect to gender and the dynamics and the power we get just by being men through right. no brilliance of our own, we're not, in the short term, we benefit from that. In the long term, we create a society that is so imbalanced. We create expectations for our own performance that are so unhealthy. And we carry a level of shame that we don't even recognize right. at some point. So I want us to be free, all of us. Um, and I want us to see that as a liberation for everyone, not just for, quote-unquote, black lives. Mr. Thurston, we thank you for your time, and uh, we wish you the best of luck. Thank you very much. I wish you the best, too. Thank you so much. It's been, been an honor uh, to talk with you, and thanks for allow me to speak with uh, some of the good people in South Korea. Thank you.